Good afternoon, church. Hope you all had a wonderful week. Today's passage comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. I'd like to invite you all to please stand on your feet in honor of the word of the Lord. And church, let us read this scripture reading together on account of three. One, two, three. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once he has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the common faith that will be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Church, this is the word of the Lord. You all may be seated. I miss you guys last week. I really do. Every time I'm away, it's always hard for me. I always feel like I'm, something's not right. Even though I was preaching somewhere else, something's not right. And I really, really miss home. But apparently, you guys did not miss me because you guys were having great time last week. Okay, because I, I got the report from one of the ushers. Um, he sent me the number. I'm like, wow, this is the highest attendance ever in English service. Okay, and I thought, and I said to my friend, I don't know whether I should be happy or sad that the church has the biggest attendance number. On the Sunday, I'm not present. Okay, maybe that's a sign I should plant church in Indonesia. You never know. But I miss you guys, and I had four more last week, uh, but I'm glad to be here back to you with you bringing the word. How many of you do not know I love KFC? Anyone? You guys must be new, okay? I think everybody knew, at least, to some degree, you knew that I love KFC. There were times in my life I used to eat KFC twice a week. You're going to say, think about it? No, no, twice a week. But now I ate KFC twice a month. Why? Because I care about my health. And more importantly, my weight. Because as much as I love KFC, eating KFC twice a week is not good for me. Because right now, I'm at the age where I need to start eat healthy. Okay, some of you are in that age. Why am I telling you this? Because it is very easy for us to just to want to consume spiritual KFC in our spiritual diet. So what we want is quick, entertaining, easy to listen, practical tips, good life messages from the Bible. 
And I'm not saying they're wrong, but they're not enough. Because if all we have is KFC equivalent messages, let me tell you, it won't be long before we become spiritually obese and unhealthy. Therefore, we need a healthy spiritual diet. And that's what the book of Galatians gives us. Like, if you've been with us throughout the book of Galatians, you know that the book of Galatians is not for the faint of heart. Especially, especially the text that we're in today. Okay, let me just be honest with you. I'm not going to lie to you. It is not an easy text. It is a really hard text. Like I told you a couple of weeks ago, we're going to get here. Okay, and today we're here. This is probably the second hardest text we're going to do in the book of Galatians. Okay, there's going to be another one that's even harder in the coming weeks. So yes, this text is really hard to chew. It is very theological and has no immediate practicality, but it's healthy. Because this kind of text helps us to go beyond the service and start to explore actually what is at the root of our belief. And if we get to the root of our belief, here's what I convince. It helps us to know God more and to delight in Him more. And when a text like this takes a deep root in our understanding, we become steady Christians who are not easily swayed by false teaching because we are deeply rooted in the Bible. We become a someone Christian. We be like a tree planted by stream of water that yields fruit in a season and its leaf does not wither. Okay? How many of you want to be that kind of Christian? Can I see your hand? Okay? I hope all of you are in the right place. And tonight, get ready for hard food. Okay? We're going to talk about something that is extremely theological, but extremely healthy for us. See, over the years, I've met many well-intentioned Christians who believe that God has different plans of salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So they, think, say, they say things like this, like in the Old Testament, God saved the people of Israel through the law. So for people to be saved, they must obey the law of God, and if they fell short, they could not be saved. So salvation is conditioned upon obedience. But in the New Testament, God saved people by grace. So God realized that, you know, salvation by obedience is too hard, and finally, God realized it was total failure, so God changed His plan of salvation. Now, God offers salvation by grace without the condition of obedience. So in the Old Testament, God is like a strict father, you know, like a strict dad who disciplined his children with, with you know, with wrath. While in the New Testament, God is like a granddad, you know, he's really lenient and gracious toward their grandchildren. And if you ever heard things like this, let me tell you, that's wrong. Because as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, it has always been God's plan to save people by grace. Remember Abraham? See, Abraham was not counted righteous because of something that he did or did not do. He was counted righteous simply because he chose to believe God. So salvation by grace has always been God's plan A and not God's plan B. God never changed his plan of salvation, which led us to this question. Here's the question that I want us to wrestle with today as we look at our text. If salvation is by grace alone, well, then what is the purpose of the law? Because if we are free from the law, doesn't mean we don't have to obey the law. If we are saved by Christ's perfect performance, then 
why should we even bother or strive to live a holy life? Okay, let me put it in a daily context for you. If I'm already accepted by God because of faith, well, then how should I treat my spouse? How should I think about my money? How hard should I work? Do these things even matter? Does that even make any difference because I'm already saved by grace? Okay, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, okay? How does the law of God fit into the gospel? As Christian today, what is our relationship to God's law? You with me so far? That is my introduction. That's where we're going, okay? And the text will tell us three things in this passage. The priority of the promise, the purpose of the law, and the presence of faith. Okay, look at the first one. The priority of the promise. Verse 15 to verse 17. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it when it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which comes 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void, okay? And throughout any series, I can only do this one, previously in the book of Galatians. Now, so Paul argued that justification comes by faith alone and not works, right? So remember last week, Pastor Verdi preached wonderfully that the righteous shall live by faith. Remember that illustration? If we can't even be like MJ, not Mary Jane, but Michael Jordan, if we have no hope to be like Michael Jordan, what hope do we have to be like Jesus? God's standard is nothing short of perfection when we all fall short. But praise God, then Pastor Verdi introduced us to this wonderful theological word, which is substitutionary atonement where Jesus became cursed for us that, so that we may receive the blessing of Abraham to faith. That's last week. And today, to solidify his point, Paul gave an example from everyday life, a man-made covenant. Now, the Greek word for it is diateke, which is a word for a legal will. Okay, we have a lawyer here. What is a will? Okay, a will is a legal document paper that a person writes down to say what should be done with his possession after he dies, right? And after that person dies, whatever is written in the will is unnegotiable and unchangeable. Am I right, Mr. Loyal? Okay, he's not. That's true. So once will is legally made, it is considered binding no matter what changes in condition may occur. Let me give you an example. Like a few years ago, uh, my dad uh, took me and my sister and he wrote his will. I know what is in his will, but do not be capable, okay? <laughs> this is just for me and my sister. But let's say, let's say that my dad, apparently, he's like Elon Musk. He has Ferrari, a private villa, and a private jet. And he also has Hyundai i30. Okay, I repented of using Honda Jazz because some of you complained. Okay. So, and then he wrote in his will that Ferrari, that his Ferrari, his Fila, and his Jet would be mine when he's passed away, and my sister will get Hyundai. That is his inheritance for us. 
But then along the way, my sister lost lost a lot of money in her business and she is in financial need. I mean, she could really use my part of the inheritance. But let me tell you, it does not matter how much my sister needs my part of the inheritance. It is legally mine. She must be content with her Hyundai. And Paul says that God's promises works like a legal will. And this is Paul's point. If a man-made covenant cannot be set aside, how much more is God's covenant? Because what is true in human court has even greater force in the courtroom of God. Now, let's remember what happened when God made promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. Remember that? When God showed Abraham, look at the stars in the sky, this is going to be your descendant, and Abraham said, I believe you, and it's counted to him as righteousness. And after that, actually what happened next is God sealed that promise by making a covenant in Abraham, with Abraham. See, in Asian times, when you made a covenant, you acted out the curse of the breaking of covenant. So if I make a covenant with Sarah, well, no, sorry, with Josh, too dangerous making a covenant with another girl, especially a married girl. If I make a covenant with Josh, okay, I would say, Josh, I promise to do this and that. And Josh would say, I promise to do this and that. And then what we would do, we would cut animals, cut them in half, walk together between the pieces and say, if I don't keep my promise, if I break our covenant, may I be cut to pieces like this animal. We are acting out the curse. But what's amazing, when God made covenant with Abraham, is that Abraham did not walk between the pieces. Only God alone walked between the pieces because God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, I will be faithful to my promise. I will keep my covenant with you. And if I break my covenant, Abraham, I will die. And you know what was Abraham's role in the covenant? Nothing. He just had to believe. He did not walk between the pieces. It means it did not matter what Abraham did. The responsibility to fulfill the promise lay on God alone. God would die before he broke his promise to bless Abraham. And God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, I will do this for you. I will bless you. I will give you descendants. I will bless all nations through your offspring. And it doesn't matter what you do, Abraham, I will do it. Whether or not you're faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. Even if I have to be killed, I will do it. That's how committed God was to fulfill His promise to Abraham. No string attached, no laws to obey, no condition to fulfill. God would do it. Now, why this is important? Because Paul say, the law that come 430 years after God's promise with covenant Abraham cannot alter that. See, the promise and the law are not on equal terms. The question is, and this is the debate between Paul and the false teachers, which one has a priority? The promise or the law? Which one has more weight? Because the false teachers said, and this is their argument, well, the law changed everything. See, God made a promise to Abraham, and then God gave the law to Moses. That means if we want to receive the blessing of Abraham, we must obey the law of Moses. 
There's a progression from promise to law. Yes, we believe the promise, but now we must obey the law to receive the promise. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You get it all wrong. You get the order mixed up. Because if by giving the law, God then made the promise he had with Abraham conditioned upon obedience to the law, then the covenant God made to Abraham is meaningless, null and void. It means God changed his mind. But that ain't possible. God does not make promises to break them, especially the covenant promise he made to Abraham. Because if God breaks them, he will be dead. In other words, Paul's saying, instead of looking at the promise of God through the lens of the law of God, switch the order. Look at the, pro- look at the law of God through the lens of the promise of God. Remember, order is everything in Christianity. It is what separate true gospel from the false gospel. And Paul argue here that the promise of God has priority over the law of God. The law that come 430 years after the promise cannot change or alter the promise that God has already made. And that is why in verse 18, he says this, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And this is extremely crucial concept. The concept of promise and law are mutually exclusive. We can't mix them. If I give you something because of what I promise, it has nothing to do with your performance. If I give you something because of what you've done, then it has nothing to do with my promise. Paul is clear. Either we receive something by grace or works. Either it comes because of the giver promise or the receiver performance. It's one or the other. And for a promise to bring result, you only need to believe. For a law to bring result, you must obey. For example, if I say to you, I want to give each of you $1,000. Don't go anywhere after the service, and I promise I will give $1,000 to you. What do you have to do to get it? You simply have to believe me and not go anywhere after the service, right? By the way, this is just illustration. Don't stay in your seat waiting for $1,000. It's not going to happen. But if you fail to believe me and leave straight after the service, you won't get the money, correct? But if I say to you, I want to give each of you 1000 bucks, but... You have to bring a friend, one friend to church for the rest of the year, every week. Then, in order to get the money, you have to fulfill the condition that I set for you. You with me? And that's why it is very different. In a promise covenant, it all depends on the promiser. All you have to do is just believe the promiser. But in a law covenant, it has to do with the recipient, whether or not you meet the condition. And Paul says that the blessing of Abraham comes either by promise or by law, is either based on the trustworthiness of the promiser or based on the performance of the recipient. It can't be both. If it's both, it means it has condition to it and it becomes a law. Do you see? 
Here's the point Paul is making. Okay? There's a contrast between the covenant promise and the covenant of law. Look at the contrast between the two covenants. In the promised covenant, God is saying, I will, I will, I will. In the law covenant, God is saying, you shall, you shall, you shall. Promised covenant is all about God's plan, God's grace, and God's initiative. Law covenant is about man's duty, man's work, and man's responsibility. Promised covenant is only to be believed. Law covenant is to be obeyed. Question. Which one is Christianity? It's one or the other. And here's the good news. Christianity is not religion of the law. Christianity is religion of promise. We receive the blessing of Abraham not by works, but by faith. And the promise of God finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the promised offspring through whom all the nation of the earth shall be blessed. So we receive the blessing of Abraham solely to our faith in Jesus. Let me tell you how freeing this is. I know it's been very technical, but let me tell you, if you get this, it is extremely freeing for our Christian life. Because if we can be honest, we often make the same mistake as the Galatian Christian. Yes, we know that God has promised to bless us, but somehow then we believe that this blessing needs to be achieved by our obedience to the law. And it puts us in this performance treadmill with God nowhere. And we are trapped in this performance mentality. And because of that, most of us, we are exhausted and tired. Because now, Christianity becomes a burden of weight that we have to carry instead of joy. And that is why you hear this vocabulary a lot. What do I need to do? How often do I have to pray? How much do I have to give? How much sacrifice do I need to make? How much do I have to give to the church? And Paul says, that an offer that begins as a promise must continue to be made on the same basis. As soon as it becomes performance, it is no longer promise. And yet, isn't that true? It's very easy for us as Christians to look within ourselves, to look at our own effort and performance to give us that sense of assurance that we're okay with God. And we become extremely insecure, Christian, because of it. We never know. We always think like, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I, I don't know if God's pleased with me. But the gospel tells us, stop looking at you. That's not the point. And start looking at Christ. Because when you look at Christ, you look at the perfect work that He has done for you and me at the cross. That's how we know where we stand with God. Not based on our performances, based on the perfect work that Jesus accomplished. And what we need, what we need is nothing. All we need is belief. God does not deal with us according to our works, but according to His promise. Which tells us that our salvation is not hinged on our performance and ability to keep the law, but on Jesus' performance and ability to keep the law for us. So you, if you hear the gospel tonight and you say, I have to do something. I know, I know, I know, I, know, I get it. But I have to, be, I have to do, do something to be worthy of it. You know what that is? Unbelief. Because the offer of the gospel is for you to come with nothing and simply believe. It is the offer of rest. You no longer have to strive. 
you can breathe and relax now because Jesus has completed the work of salvation for you. And I hope that's clear. The promise has priority of the law. And the law of God cannot alter the promise of God. But then the question is, and now we get to the hard part. Well, if that's true, why did God give the law, right? Well, if, if salvation is by promise, then what's the purpose of the law? Because we know God is the one who gave promise and the law. Both come together from God, and we cannot separate them. We cannot make the promise and the law enemy. No, they're best friend. There's no contradiction in God. The law coming along cannot mean that God changed his mind about how he relate to us. But the law is not left over. Okay, the law is not like, you know, few extra screws that we don't know what to do with after we assemble our furniture. So why the law? Let's look at the second one. What is the purpose of the law? Verse 19 to 20. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place to angels by intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, okay? We'll look at three purposes of the law, one at this point and two at the other point. But this one, the first one, is probably the most shocking one, okay? Why? Because when we talk to many Christians, when we talk about the law of God, they assume that the law of God is given for us to obey the law so that we may receive salvation through it, right? No. Wrong. Paul says that the purpose of the law is not to provide salvation, but actually to point us to our need for salvation. The law did not come to tell us about salvation, but about sin. In other words, his we want to understand the first purpose of the law is to reveal sin. Because now the law of God tells us this is God's perfect standard for us. And at the same time, it's revealed to us our failure to meet those standards. The law of God tells us that all of us are lawbreakers. And it proves that we cannot be the solution to our own problem. So when you look at the Ten Commandments, that commandments are not given as a checklist. If I do all these ten, then God will accept me. No, my friend. That commandment tells us God's standard of holiness. It shows us the kind of person that God wants us to be. And the problem, none of us can, can live out the ten commandments. None of us can live up to that perfect standard. And the law tells us, you suck at it. It's like this. It's like me weighing myself on the scale. Like, I just came back from Bali, and I know what my skills tell me on Thursday morning when I get on that scale. It tell me, my dearest boss, how long has it been since the last time you exercised? You ate too much babi guling, and you need to go on diet and start exercising. That's what my skill tells me on Thursday morning. However, my scale does not have the power to make me exercise or go on diet. The law tells us what is right, but it does not make us righteous. The law tells us, here's your problem. It does not give us a solution. In fact, the law makes it worse for us. How? Here's how. 
The law makes wrongdoing a legal offense. It turns invisible sin into visible transgression of the law. Think about it. Let's say you go to a doctor, but you, not, you do not believe in the doctor. That distrust is something that's already true in your heart, right? You distrust your doctor in your heart, but it is invisible. No one can see it. But that distrust becomes visible when your doctor writes your prescription and you toss it in a bin. That written prescription makes a visible transgression out of invisible distrust. You with me? The law does not make us sinners. The law reveals that we are sinners. I mean, let me tell you, it's easy. It is easy to say we love God. Everybody loves God until God says something. Everybody loves God. Nobody has a problem with God until God gives the law. Suddenly, it reveals the wickedness of our heart. Like parents, you get this, right? Don't you see the same problem in your kids? How does your kid respond when you tell him, don't do it, don't touch it, don't go near it? Isn't that true? The more you tell them not to do it, the more they want to do it. And they even have the audacity to look at you and smile while they do it. It's as if they intentionally want you to know that they want to do it because it's forbidden. And let's not talk about our kids. Isn't that true about us? The more people tell us not to do something, the more we want to do it. The more people tell us to not do it, the more we want to do it. Because there's this voice inside of us that whisper, nobody gets to tell me what to do with my life. This is my life. I get to decide what I want to do with it. Right? And do you see what happened here? Rather than enabling us to obey the law, knowing the law actually makes us want to disobey it. The law reveals a deep desire to be our own savior instead of depending on the savior. Because deep inside our heart, we want to be sovereign. We want to be God. And we hate the law because it reminds us that God is God and we're not God. The law makes the invisible sin of our heart visible. Let's continue the next verse. And let me be honest. Verse 20 is extremely hard to understand. One commentator note that there may be up to 300 interpretations for verse 20 alone. Okay? So what does Paul mean when he says now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one? Okay? So I've read many different commentaries uh, in my study of the Bible, and this is the best that I found, okay? And I'm quoting John Piper. This is what he said. Quote begin. I'm not going to deal with this first because I don't know what it means. Quote close. <laughs> if John Piper can say that, it gives me the liberty to say, I don't know what this verse means. I ain't going to deal with this. But if you look at the overall picture, I think it's enough for us to know that once again, Paul is arguing for the superiority of the promise over the law. Because the people of Israel received the law through mediators. God gave it to an angel, 
and the angel gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people of God, which means the promise came to the people third hand. But God gave the promise directly to Abraham. The promise came to Abraham first hand. Therefore, the promise is superior to the law. It's like when we are unhappy, you know, with the employee in the customer support. What do we do? Let me speak with the manager, right? We want to cut the middleman. We want to complain with the huts. And what the God does with the law is there's no middleman. Therefore, it is superior to the law. But then the question is, if that's the case, does the law work against the promise? For 21 to 22. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness will indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul answers, no, definitely not. The promise, does, the law does not work against the promise. Because Paul is saying there's nothing whatsoever wrong with the law. But the law was never given to make us righteous. No one has ever been made righteous by keeping the law. We break the law every day. The law tells us we are sinners, but it cannot make us right with God. And the problem is not the law. The problem is the sin inside of us. Because the truth is we are far more wicked than we think we are. We have capacity for evil way beyond what we dare to believe. And what the law does is expose us to our true condition. When the law comes, we realize that we cannot say no to sin. We are so addicted to sin that we can do nothing but sin. And the law cannot help us. The law is holy, but it cannot make us holy. The law is good, but it cannot make us good. The law is righteous, but it cannot make us righteous. Leave us to our own. We are hopeless. Let me put it this way. The law functions like chemotherapy. When I was diagnosed with leukemia, uh, my doctor decided to give me the strongest chemotherapy treatment available at the time. And they warned me beforehand, before the treatment started, he said this, when we start treating you with chemo, you will not get better. In fact, you will get a lot worse. Why? Because chemotherapy is a very strong poison. It destroys both the good and the bad cell in the body. So that's why during the treatment, chemotherapy will make me not healthier, but sicker. But it was necessary for my long-term health. In much the same way, the law makes us worse to make us better. How? How does the law make us better? Here's how. Our inability to keep the law tell us that we are prisoners of sin, helpless to free ourselves. We desperately need a rescue. So now, the law, the purpose of the law is to show us our real condition and point us to the only solution. And you know what that is? The promise of God. 
the bad news is we cannot save ourselves. But then the law says, hold on a second, remember that the promise come before the law. The law point us to good news. So the law does not oppose the promise of God, but point us to our need of the promise. The law show us we need salvation by promise because here's what we know by, by heart. The more we know the law, the more we see our sin and the more we confess our need for Savior. The law is the law so that Christ can become the Savior. So when the law is used properly, it does not oppose the promise, or it doesn't. The law, in fact, supports salvation by grace. It points us that we need salvation by promise. The law of God makes the promise of God indispensable. Thomas Watson put it this way, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And the law and the promise work in harmony to bring about salvation. The law cannot save, but it points to Jesus, and Jesus can save. Which led us to my third point, the presence of faith. 22 to 25. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith will be received, will reveal. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And it ends in a coma, okay? We will continue the first next week. Because if we continue what happened after the coma, the sermon will be 15 minutes longer, okay? So that's why we have to stop here. Because in these verses, Paul gives us two other purposes of the law. And Paul used two different metaphors to describe the way the law works in our life. The first metaphor, that the law is a guard. The word held captive and imprisoned mean that we are under watch of military guard. And the second metaphor, the law is a guardian. And in homes of Paul's day, a guardian was usually a slave who supervised the children of the, on the parents' behalf. So a guardian is like a babysitter with the parent's authority to discipline the child. So the role of a guardian is to make sure the child grows up well and well-educated. And in both metaphor, we find that God and guardian both remove freedom. Can we agree? Because the relationship we have with God and guardian is relationship that is based on reward and punishment. They can govern our behavior, but they do not have the power to make us good which led me to our second purpose of the law. The second purpose of the law is to restrain. The law keeps our sinful nature in check to the threat of punishment and consequences. It does not remove the presence of sin in our heart, but it restrains it. Like this, for example. How many of you hate speeding cameras? Can I see your hand? You just hate speeding camera, okay? A lot of you, uh, some of you are honest, some of you are lying. I hate it, okay? I especially hate speeding camera in where? School zones. I get caught a couple of times. Now imagine a country with no speeding camera, no speeding law. 
do you think everyone in that country will drive 40 kilometers per hour in a school zone? Well, no, right? They will drive 120 kilometers per hour, and it will be very dangerous. So the fact that we have speeding law and speeding camera is good. Can we agree? It helps to protect the safety of children, and it restrains us from speeding to a threat of $350 fine. But it does not remove our desire to drive fast. What do we do as soon as we pass the school zone? Hit that gas pedal. <laughs> so the two purposes of the law here are to refill and to restrain. But here's the important part. Paul says that the works of the law only temporary. The law keeps us in prison and discipline us until the coming of faith. And once faith comes, once Christ comes, once we are justified by faith, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under the law. So the lesson of the law, the lesson that the law is teaching us is we must go beyond the law. We must go to faith. We must go to Christ. But in order to get to Christ, we need the law. We need the law to lead us to Christ. For only when the law reveal our sin will we look for the salvation that God has for us in the gospel. And that is why, church, it is not enough. It is not enough for me to only preach the good news. Because good news of grace means nothing, nothing, if you do not know how sinful you are. Therefore, I must preach on sin and judgment. I must preach the law of God. I cannot bypass the law of God and go straight to the gospel of grace. We must know the severity of the bad news to understand why we need the good news. Okay? And I'm going to quote John Stott here at length, but it is a really, really, really good quote. This is what he said. I hope you guys can read it. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. It is only when the law has done its works in our life that we are ready the gospel. We only celebrate the gospel to the degree, to the degree we understand the law. Then the question is this, well, of course, after we put our faith in Jesus then, after faith has come, doesn't mean that now we don't need the law. Does the law no longer serve a purpose? Can we forget it? Absolutely not. Does a child who has become mature then throw out all the value that the parents and the guardians have put in him? Well, of course not. 
Because if all goes well, the adult child is no longer forced into obedience to reward and punishment. Why? Because those values now have become intrinsic to him. It has become part of him. He lifted out not because he has to, but because he wants to. And this is what Paul is hinting at. The gospel means that we no longer obey the law out of fear of rejection. We no longer obey the law in hope of salvation by our performance. But when we understand that salvation is by promise, here's what happened. Our hearts want to please God. And the way we do so is by obeying the law, which led me to the third purpose of the law. The third purpose of the law is now to redirect us. Because after we've been saved by faith, the law shows us this is how you please God with your life. So we do not get rid of the law after we are saved, but the law shows us the direction that we need to take in our life as Christians. So the law functions like a railroad tracks. Like, what does the railroad track does? It guides the train and makes sure the train stays on the right track, right? But railroad track does not have the power to move the train. The law points us in the right direction, but the law doesn't have the power to move us in the right direction. You know what has the power? The gospel. The gospel is the locomotive. The gospel is the engine. And now, because we have the gospel, we have the engine. We have the power to obey God. To obey God. The law gives us the direction that we should go. And now, we obey God. Not because we try to prove ourselves. We obey God because we love God. See, without the gospel, listen, without the gospel, without the gospel, we can obey the law but we cannot love the law. Cannot. You will only learn to hate the law. We will never love the law of God because if we don't get the gospel, the law of God simply is our self-salvation project. But once we get the gospel, once we understand we are already accepted by our faith in Jesus, now here's what's amazing. We no longer obey God for our sake. We obey God for, our, for His sake. We are using the law to please God. And that is why if you find the Old Testament, you know, like David said, you know, how I love the law of God, how I delight in the law of God, the law of God tastes like honey. How can David say all of that? Because he understands that he's already accepted by God. He not, that doesn't need to prove himself. And there is no way we can love the law unless we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never love the law without the gospel. Let me close with this. I know this is very a lot to take. But my point is simply this. We must be able to see how the law of God and the gospel work together in our salvation. We must not separate the law and the promise. Why? Because Jesus is the embodiment of both. Jesus is full of grace, promise, and is full of truth, law. It's not 50% grace and 50% truth. No, no, no. Jesus is 100% grace and 100% truth at the same time. And therefore, as a Christian, we must embrace both because we can't have the joy and freedom of acceptance if we don't admit the seriousness of our sin.
we must listen to the low, painful diagnosis of our condition. Because unless we see how helpless and sinful we are, the gospel will not be precious to us. Unless we know how big our debt is, we have no idea what it costs Jesus to pay our debt. But if we let the law tell us how bad we really are, the law will also show us how good Jesus really is. Let me close with this illustration. Let's say your friend decided to pay your bill. How will you respond to your friend's kindness? It depends on the bill, right? If it's a 50 bucks bill, you say, oh, thanks, mate. You don't have to, but thank you. That's sufficient. But if the bill is 500,000 bucks, then you will probably fall to your knee and say, mate, command me. Whatever you say, I will do. This is what the law and the gospel do. Because the law revealed to us how big our debt is. And the gospel tells us, Jesus has paid that enormous bill. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. And He died miserably white to pay our infinite debt. So that when we see what it cost Jesus to pay for our debt, when we put our faith in Him, we receive the blessing of Abraham by faith. The law brings us to the end of ourselves to show us the infinite word of the gospel. And once we see the Savior die to make us righteous before God, we love Him and we want to please Him by obeying the law. Let's pray. Sovereign Father, we thank you because we know your plan are way beyond what we can imagine. Your thoughts are far greater than our thoughts. That you will come up with this wonderful plan of salvation, Lord, to show us how big our debt is and at the same time show us the preciousness of the sacrifice that your son made for us. I pray that we will never ever lose sight of both. But rather, Lord, as we let the Lord do it works in our heart, as we let the Lord reveal to us how sinful we are, we are more and more amazed of the wonderful goodness of the gospel that is ours by our faith in you. Father, help us. For the time again and again that we continue to go back to the Lord to prove ourselves, forgive us but reminds us that the law is given not for us to prove ourselves, that the law is given not for us to save ourselves through it, but rather to see how wicked we really are and how wonderful salvation that Jesus purchased for us. Help us, Lord. Continue to captivate us with the goodness of the gospel and change us from the inside out so that the law will no longer be something that we use to prove ourselves, but the law become a railroad tracks by which we know how to please our, the love of our soul. Help us, Lord, because we can't do it on our own strength. We need you to do it for us. And we ask this in the beloved name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.